Well, thank you for that singing. And I'd encourage you to take your Bibles and uh, open to the Gospel of Mark. This morning we are beginning week two of our journey through the Gospel of Mark. It's going to take us 16 weeks if we go fast, okay? And so our plan is to go through the Gospel of Mark in 16 weeks. Now, I've encouraged you in the past, uh, find some paper, find a notebook. What I'd encourage you to do is bring the same notebook week after week after week so you can take notes so that long after we're done with this series, long after I'm gone as the interim pastor here at Crosspoint, you'll still have these things that you can remember that we talked about from the Gospel of Mark. And I think, do we have one on the screen now? Yeah, so I think going forward, we are going to have what, um, if we were going to speak Greek, it's called prototokos. By the way, you never need to know that word again, so just ignore it. But it's where we get the English word prototype. And so going forward, I think this is going to be the prototype of our note-taking experience here at cross point. Each week, of course, it's going to switch. Next week will be, well, in two weeks we'll be in Mark chapter 3. I'll explain that at the end of the sermon. Um, but we're here to talk about the gospel. We're working our way through what's, what we call, if we stand on the street corners and we talk to each other, we're talking about, we're preaching our way through the, the gospel of Mark. The word gospel literally means good news. So we can easily say here this morning that we are Continuing our journey of looking at the good news of Jesus as recorded for us by some guy named Mark. The gospel means good news. But let's just stop and think for a minute. Just what is the good news? What is the good news that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all talking about? Well, the good news is this, that Jesus, God's only Son, left His home in heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect, sin-free, sinless life when He walked on the earth. At the end of 30-some years, He was taken outside of Jerusalem, nailed to a Roman cross, and He was crucified. Let's just picture that. He was crucified. They took those nine-inch nails and pounded him through his wrists and through his ankles. And he hung there on the cross. And yes, he died. He didn't just go into a coma. He died. He'd never sinned, not even a single time. And at the end of his life on earth, he was crucified. He shed his blood as the full and final and complete price for all of our sin. He died on the cross. He was taken down from the cross. He was placed in a tomb. And three days later, he came back to life. And he walked on this earth for 40 days after he came back from the dead. And then he returned to his home in heaven. And the good news is that Jesus paid the full price for our sin on the cross. And the second part of the good news is that someday he's coming back. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Let's look at this. Leave one hand in Mark. Your other hand turn to Acts chapter 1. And let's, let's read this little paragraph where we discover that Jesus talks about the angels talk about Jesus is coming back. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, says this, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on... Now let me just stop there. He's just, he's just invited his disciples to come and gather together with him outside of Jerusalem before he goes back to heaven. So the 40 days of walking on the earth is over. 
And you know, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then in verse 9 he says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Can you just imagine that? Let's just stop. Can you just imagine that? Imagine that you're standing there outside Jerusalem that day. And Jesus has finished talking. And then he's lifted up. And as they were looking on, he was lifted up in a cloud. This cloud came from somewhere. And then it says, took him out of their sight. Isn't that just incredible? And, and so I've thought about that verse, and I've thought about, and I, well, no, where did he go? Well, yeah, I know those of us have been hanging around church, I know he went back to heaven, but where is that? It's up there someplace, and that's where he went. And verse 10 says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is coming back. Amen. Amen. He's coming back. We now... We have four Gospels in our Bible, right? We all have the same Bibles. It doesn't matter if you buy your Bible online or you buy your Bible at a used bookstore or you go over here to Crossroads Book and Bible Store on 41st Street. We all end up with a Bible with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Each of those four Gospels is similar to, yet different from, the other three. We're spending four or five months working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and I can tell you that Mark's Gospel begins, and those of you who were here last week will remember this, Mark's Gospel begins not with the birth of Jesus, but it begins with Jesus as an adult about to enter his ministry. Now let's just think about this for a minute. Let's, if for whatever reason, this, this precious book that we call the Bible, if, if this book that we hold in our hands, let's just imagine that it doesn't have four Gospels. Let's just imagine for a moment that it only has one Gospel. And let's imagine that the only Gospel it has is the Gospel of Mark. If, if our Bible only has one Gospel, and if the only Gospel it has is the Gospel of Mark, well, our lives would be completely different than they are today. For example, if the only gospel we have is the gospel of Mark, I would propose this idea that we would never have a Christmas program. Now, just think about this with me. If the only gospel we have is Mark, we would never know about the angel who visited a young woman named Mary and told her that God had chosen her from among all the women on the earth chose her to have his son. If the only gospel is Mark, we'd never know that. If the only gospel we have is the gospel of Mark, we'd never know about the angel who visited a guy named Joseph and told him it was okay to go and take Mary as his wife, even though she's already pregnant. We'd never know that. 
If the only gospel we have is Mark, we would never know that some guy named Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And because of that census, some guy named Joseph and his fiance at that point named Mary traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem. We'd never know about that if the only gospel we have is the gospel of Mark. So see, we have four gospels, and some people just automatically think, well, they're all the same. They're just written by somebody. They're not the same. There's pieces in each of the gospel that are the same, but each of the gospels is different from the other three. If the only gospel we have is the gospel of Mark, we'd never know that it was while Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem that Jesus was born in some sort of what? Some sort of animal feeding trough. We wouldn't even know about that. If the only gospel we have is the gospel of Mark, we would never know that the angels visited the shepherds outside of Bethlehem and said that today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born for you. We wouldn't even know about that. If the only gospel we have is the gospel of Mark, we wouldn't know the story about how the Magi traveled to Jerusalem looking for a new king. And when they announced in Jerusalem that they were here looking for a new king, that Herod just went crazy and gave the order that all baby boys two years old and younger should be killed. The only gospel we have is the gospel of Mark. We wouldn't even know that happened. If the only gospel we have is Mark's gospel, we'd never know any of those things because Mark doesn't tell us about any of those things. And that's why it's my belief that if the only gospel we had is the gospel of Mark, we would never have a Christmas program. I mean, what would we do at a Christmas program? We couldn't have the wise men. We couldn't have Mary and Joseph. We couldn't have the shepherds. I mean, what would we talk about? We couldn't have Christmas programs, at least not the way we have Christmas programs today. So this morning, I want you to take your Bibles, and we looked at Mark chapter 1 last week. Let's turn to Mark chapter 2. Not only is the Gospel of Mark, we talked about this last week, Gospel of Mark is the first of the four Gospels to be written, but it's also the shortest. You might want to make note of that. It's the shortest of all the Gospels. But what's the purpose? I mean, what is the purpose of the Gospel of Mark? The purpose of this book that's short compared to the other three is to show that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. He's the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for. He's the Son of God who was sent into this world to suffer and to serve in order to rescue and restore mankind. Leave one hand in Mark chapter 2. Turn back seven or eight pages to the right. Turn with me to Mark 10.45. Take your pen out and underline Mark 10.45. Underline Mark 10.45 because Mark 10.45 is the key verse in the Gospel of Mark. And in my Bible, and you're going to get used to me saying this, not only have I underlined Mark 10.45, in the margin over there where the Zondervan or whoever your Bible publisher is gives you that space on the, both sides. I actually wrote the two words, key verse, next to Mark 10.45 so that when I'm searching for that key verse or when I'm just reading through Mark 10.45, I will know that's the key verse of the Gospel of Mark. 10.45 says this, and if you don't have time to underline this now, underline it when you get home. For even the Son of Man came not to be served... But to serve. Jesus didn't come to be served. He didn't come to be waited on. He came to serve. And he came to, it says, to give his life as a ransom 
for many. Now, while it's true that Matthew's gospel is written to Jewish people, Matthew was a Jew, he wrote that to his own people, it's also true that the gospel of Mark is written to Gentiles. More than likely, it's written to Gentiles who are living in Rome. So we could say this if we want to talk about all four. You might want to put this in your notes someplace. Matthew is written to Jewish people. Mark is written to the Romans. Matthew, Mark. Luke is written to Gentiles. And John, well, John's written to everyone. You know, one of the most familiar verses in all of Holy Scripture is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that everyone who believes in him can have eternal life. Now, you're young, okay? When you get old like me, you can't remember all these things. So here's what I did. Above Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, I wrote down, Matthew is written to Jewish people. Above Mark chapter 1, verse 1, I wrote down, Mark is written to Romans. Above Luke chapter 1, verse 1, I wrote down that Luke is written to Gentiles. And above John chapter 1, verse 1, I wrote down in my Bible that John is written to everyone. Mark wrote his gospel as a... I've tried to come up with words to describe Mark, but he's, he's like a loving, gracious, kind, spiritual leader who's writing to a group of people living in Rome who have already heard the gospel and they've already responded to the gospel. It's not an evangelical message that he's giving. It's just a reminder of who Jesus is and what he did. And as we follow Jesus as he travels through Galilee and the surrounding areas and travels down to Judea, we realize, and we're going to come to discover this time and time again, that yes, Jesus touched hundreds. He touched thousands of lives as he traveled around. But even as he's traveling around with some days, he's looking around and there's 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 people following him. He still took the time to concentrate on these 12 guys. He's formed this team that we call the disciples. And he's concerned about them just as much or more so than he's concerned about those 30,000 that travel from time to time. Mark's uh, emphasis is twofold. Number one, he focuses on, and we've discovered this, he focuses on the fast pace of Jesus as he travels from one place to the next. In fact, the key word in the Gospel of Mark is the word immediately... And I would encourage you that as you read through the Gospel of Mark, every time you come up and discover the word immediately, that you underline that in your Bible or you put a circle around it or do something with it. And depending on which Bible translation you have, I know of one translation that has the word immediately 39 times in 16 chapters or some similar phrase. But Mark's Twofold emphasis here. He focuses on the fast pace of Jesus, how he goes from one place to the next. And the second thing he does, he focuses on what Jesus did, not necessarily on what Jesus said. So I hope that before you've come today, you've already, I'm assuming this, you've already read chapters one and chapter two, so we're going to jump into chapter chapter two. Let's go back to 2, verse 1. At the beginning of Mark chapter 2, Jesus enters the city of Capernaum. Now, you might remember from last week, if you were here, the city of Capernaum, and we took the time to look in our maps at the back of our Bibles. I've discovered this, that going to church 
for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, however long it's been, I, I can count on one hand the number of times the pastor ever said, let's take our Bibles and look at the maps. It just doesn't happen. But last week, we actually opened our Bibles and we looked at that map where the Sea of Galilee is in the north and Jerusalem is in the south, and we discovered that the city of Capernaum is on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And we know from history that at the time Jesus walked the earth, there were between 1,000 and 1,500 people living in Capernaum. And of the original 12 disciples that followed Jesus, then this is something that's always fascinated me, five of the 12 all came from that same little town. James and his brother John, Peter and his brother Andrew, and Levi. They all lived in the same community. They fished together. I would guess that as young kids, they all got in trouble together. Okay? As young Jewish boys, they all celebrated Passover together. And they all went to the synagogue. They all went to the same synagogue. Mark 2 verse 1 says this, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. The Greek words for that little phrase, at home, suggest a place that is a familiar location. Now we could rewrite, in the Steve Anderson translation, we could rewrite verse 1 that would say something like this, Jesus had returned to Capernaum to a place with which he was familiar. Most commentaries would remind us or have us to believe that this place that Jesus is familiar with could very well be Simon Peter's house, the house he visited in Mark chapter 1. Keep your hand in Mark chapter 2. Just go back a few verses. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 29. Mark 1, beginning in verse 29. And immediately, there's a verse, a word you want underlined. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately, there it is, underlined it. They told him about her and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. It makes sense to me, and it makes sense to you. Let's just stop and think about this. If we're going to go back to a place that we've visited before, and we have friends in that community, it makes all the sense in the world that we would go back and revisit the places we'd been before and the friends that we have in that community. It makes all the sense in the world that when Jesus goes back to Capernaum in Mark chapter 2, that he would go back and visit Peter and Andrew and stop by their house in Mark 2, verse 1. Now, there's two things I want us to look at in chapter 2. And we're going to discover the same thing last week that we're going to do today in the next 14 chapters. There's no way we can look at every little jot and tittle of every word in every chapter. So there's two things I want us to look at. The first one is in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. We briefly looked at this paragraph last week. It's the story of Jesus inviting some guy named Levi to come and follow him, to come and be one of his disciples. Verse 13 says, He went out again beside the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now if you can keep one hand there, Put your other hand in Matthew chapter 9, or just follow along as I read this to you. Here's how Matthew records the same event. Matthew 9, 9 says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. It's interesting, he uses his own name here. Sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. 
let's understand this. The man named, Ma, uh, the man named Levi in Mark chapter 2.14 is the same man known as Matthew in Matthew 9.9. 9. The calling of Levi in Mark 2 is very similar to the way Jesus called those four fishermen in Mark chapter 1. Both stories describe for us how Jesus is just sort of walking along the sea in Galilee, and in both stories, where he invites the four fishermen to come, and when he invites Levi to come and follow him, just like the fishermen, Levi follows Jesus, and Mark doesn't tell us anything about the conversation that must have taken place between Levi and Jesus before he walks away from his little business of collecting taxes. But there's another similarity between the way Levi responds and the way the fisherman responds. When Jesus seals Peter's mother-in-law, he is surrounded. Well, let's just back up a minute. When he invites the four fishermen to come and follow him, soon thereafter he's invited to Peter's house because Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And after he heals her, it says that he is surrounded by a multitude of people. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 32. Mark 1, verse 32. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city... You know, I don't... I can't stand here and tell you that all 1,500 people showed up, but I think it's sort of a, sort of a what, a metaphor. It's just describing there's a whole bunch of people out here. It seems like the whole town is here. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Look at a similar thing, a similar thing that happens after Jesus invites Levi to come and follow him. Mark 2, verse 15. And as he reclined, as this is Jesus now, and as Jesus reclined at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Multitudes of people are attracted to Jesus and his ministry. He's not a lone ranger. He's not somebody standing on the corner who preaches all day long and nobody pays attention. He, now, once we step, just step aside, it's hard to differentiate that, yes, we know he's the living son of God, but he's still here on earth as a human being, and there are hundreds and there are thousands of people who come to hear him speak. His teaching is so different from the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that wherever he goes, multitudes of people follow. It says in Mark 1, verse 21, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The ESV says the people were astonished. I don't know what translation you have, but the NIV says the people were amazed. The Aramaic Bible says the people were, and I like this word, they were dumbfounded. They had never heard teaching like that before. Ever, never, ever. And however we describe it, one thing is for certain, the people in Capernaum had never 
heard teaching like Jesus before. So of the two primary things we want to remember from Mark chapter 2, the first thing is this, would be the calling of some disciple named Levi, which was almost immediately followed up with many, many, many people coming to Levi's house to meet Jesus. Okay? Now here's the second thing I want us to remember from Mark chapter 2. Turn back to verse 1. Mark 2 verse 1. And I'm going to read the first 12 verses. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately, there's that word again, underline that. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus has returned to Capernaum, and we will discover many times in the weeks ahead that when Jesus is near, people come by the hundreds, sometimes by the thousands, to see him and to hear him. And so in Mark chapter 2, people are now surrounding this house where Jesus is staying, and they are surrounding to the house, they are surrounding the house to the point where nobody can get in or out of the house. Now, this house in Capernaum, it was constructed a little bit different than our homes are constructed here in Dakota. Okay, let's just imagine in real life, if you're standing on the roof of your house here in Sioux Falls or wherever you live around here, and you're, you need to get from the roof into the living room, how do you do that? Without going down, remember you can't get off the roof and go in the front door because there's so many people here, you can't, you can't get in the house. Well, realistically, I mean, you can watch some TV show, the only way to get from the roof into the living room, you've got to have a chainsaw. And so you cut this tremendous hole in the roof, you go through the asphalt shingles and the tar paper and the three-quarter inch plywood, and then you're into the, the beams and the rafters and you've got 28 inches of insulation or whatever you've got, and then, you, then you're faced with there's more plywood and there's more studs, and you've got to cut a big hole in the sheetrock in the ceiling of the living room, right? There's no other way to get from here. Well, houses in Capernaum were not built like they're built in Sioux Falls today. You know how a house in, uh, you've seen pictures of this, or your kids or nieces and nephews have brought home pictures from Sunday school of how, and there's time and time again we're talked about in the Old Testament where people would live on the roof of the house. 
sometimes there's a little apartment up there, it was always a flat roof, and there's always a staircase on the outside of the house that would lead up to this flat roof. But in Palestine, the roofs are always flat. They're supported by beams that run across, and the beams, you know, we're not talking about a room like this, we're talking about a a room that's probably 12 foot by 12 foot, like your bedroom at home. And so there's poles in the ceiling that go, and the poles actually lay on top of the supporting walls. And the poles in the ceiling run both ways, sort of a crisscross thing. And the poles are on top of the east and west wall, and they're on top of the north and south wall. And then when we get all these poles or thin boards, then we sort of tie them all together so they don't move around. And then we take, we go out and we get some dried grass and we put that in, you know, links of two or three feet and we tie those in bundles and we lay those on top of all those little crisscross boards. And then we go get some mud. And then we cover the whole thing with mud. And then chances are that we go out and we get more dried grass and we do a second layer So we have two layers of dried grass, and then we put another layer of mud. And by that time, it's supportive enough that you can go and actually walk on the ceiling of your house. Now you can understand it's a lot easier to cut through mud and dried grass than it is through asphalt shingles and two-by-six studs and beams and all that thing. So here they are in Mark chapter 2, and they have to get this man who they want him to be healed. They want him to meet Jesus. And the only way is, and it says, you know, in Mark, he cuts to the chase. He's not a guy for details. He's quick, quick, quick. One verse, they're on the roof. The next verse or two later, this guy, they've cut a hole in the roof, and he's down talking to Jesus. Now, as you think about this story, here's my question. After Jesus forgives the man of his sin in verse 5, go ahead and look at that. Look at Mark 2, verse 5. After Jesus forgives the man of his sins in verse 5, why does he ask the man in verse 11 to pick up his bed and go home? Now just think about that with me for a minute. In verse 5, he forgives the man of his sins. In verse 11, he says, pick up your mat and go home. And my question, I want you to think about this, is why? There's a similar story to this in John chapter 5, and some people, when you read through real quick, you think, well, it's the same story. Mark tells it one way, John tells it a little different. No, 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 it's two different stories. The story in John takes place in Jerusalem. The story in Luke takes place in, or where are we, Mark? The story in Mark takes place in Capernaum. But it's the same, same general idea of the story. Let me ask the question again. I want you to think about this. Why is it that he, when he gets, tells the man in verse 5 that your sins are forgiven. Why does he tell the man in verse 11 to take up his blanket and go home? And the answer is, Jesus had the man stand up and walk 
to show the people in Capernaum that when Jesus changes someone on the inside, it makes a difference how we live and act on the outside. See, the miracle's done in verse 5. The sins are forgiven. Jesus knows that this man now, his sin is forgiven. He's, he's been healed. He knows, Jesus knows this guy can stand up and walk. He doesn't, have to, he doesn't have to tell the guy to stand up and walk. Or do you think for a minute that Jesus is wondering, well, I wonder if that really worked. No, there's no chance. There's no chance that Jesus is confused about whether the guy is healed. He knows the guy is healed. But in verse 11, he tells him to stand up and walk so that everybody in Capernaum, everybody surrounding this house can understand that when God changes someone on the inside, it makes a difference how we live and act on the outside. Okay, now here's my question to you this morning. How is your life different on the outside now that you claim to have faith on Jesus on the inside? How is your life different on the outside? Because you claim to have faith in Jesus on the inside. Now here's one thing I've come to understand after, and I'm telling you this is after decades of ministry. The only tangible evidence that salvation has taken place in a person's life is a changed life. Let me say that again. After all these years in ministry, I can tell you this. The only tangible evidence that salvation has taken place in someone's life is that their life has changed. If the people closest to you cannot see any change in your life on the outside, even though you claim to have a relationship with Jesus on the inside, then I doubt that you really have a relationship with Jesus on the inside. I doubt it. You might think you do, and Satan wants you to believe that you do, so you don't, because he knows you're on your way to hell. But if the people who are closest to you cannot see a change in your life after you put your faith in Jesus, then they have every reason to doubt that you really do have a relationship with Christ. See, according to verses like Romans 8 9, it says that when we put our faith in Jesus for our salvation, in an instant the Holy Spirit comes in and enters our life, and the Holy Spirit begins cleaning us up and working on our life from the inside out. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to Him. So, let me close with this. If you claim to have a relationship with Jesus and the people closest to you can't see any changes in your life, then my suggestion for you is you need to get serious about this. And in the next few days or the next few weeks, you need to have a heart-to-heart, honest conversation with God. And you need to reaffirm your faith. Or in some cases, you need to affirm your faith in Jesus. You're not reaffirming. You need to become a child of God. 
You need to tell God that you believe that Jesus is the Savior. You need to make sure that you're really in love with Jesus and you're not just saying that you're in love with Jesus. One of my favorite people in the whole world is a Presbyterian pastor from Scotland. His name is Sinclair Ferguson. I've heard him preach, and I love his preaching. I've read his books, and I love his books. Sinclair Ferguson said this, If you really want to be part of the kingdom of God, then what you believe and the way you live has to be the same thing. Amen? Well, there's two or three of you. Let me say that again. If you really want to be part of the kingdom of God, then what you believe and the way you live has to be the same thing. Amen. If you're not sure of your relationship with Christ and you would like me to sit down with you over a bottle of Diet Pepsi, I don't drink coffee. I would be glad to do that. My phone number's in the bulletin. You can call me, and we will set up a time to sit down and have that conversation. I don't want you to go through life wondering, thinking, confused about whether or not you are really a child of God. If I can help you in that journey, you get a hold of me, and we'll have that conversation. Now, let me say this. Next week, oh, no, hold it, hold it. We're going to do a little review, and let me... Here's this uh, prototype. We are going to do a review for 16 weeks in a row, and at the end of 16, 16 weeks, you will be able to tell the story of the Gospel of Mark, okay? You won't need me because you'll have it yourself. Here's what we're going to remember from Mark chapter 1. The key thought in Mark chapter 1, this is what you're going to write down unless you can re- No, you can remember it. Mark chapter 1, come follow me. Jesus invites his first four disciples in Mark chapter 1. That's the theme from chapter 1. The theme from chapter 2 that you're going to remember is this. The outside always reflects the inside. Okay? Now next week, we're going to take a break from the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to preach a sermon for all the women at Cross Point, okay? Or for the women who live next door to you or work in the next office that you want to invite to come to church. Guys, you need to be here, okay? It's your job. At least drive the car, bring your wife, your daughter, your mother, your aunt. I don't care if your son, I want your son here too. Sons need to hear this. But it's not a Mother's Day sermon. It's not about moms, It's for all women everywhere, okay? And then two weeks from today, we'll go back to Mark chapter 3. So somewhere between now and two weeks from today, you need to read Mark chapter 3. Let's close in a word of prayer, and then we're going to take the offering. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that this book that we hold in our hands is the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God, that this is not just some book with a fancy leather cover that we bought on sail someplace. This, is, this really is the Word of God. Lord, give us a desire, give us the hunger to spend time reading your Word. And not just to fill our minds, but Lord, to fill our hearts. And Lord, we just ask that because you've changed us on the inside, or at least because we claim that you've changed us on the inside, we ask that people would be able to see the difference on the outside of our life as well. So it's not just talk. It's action. We ask that you'd care for us. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. The ushers can come forward.